0: That's greenlight.com slash acast. Well, hello, hello. My nostrils, listener, are being assailed by wonderful fragrances being released from the flora and uh, foliage of Regent's Park. And it's a kind of a charming day to be out in the park, just warm enough to make things pleasant. And here to make things yet more pleasant, Michael Thorpe, urban historian
1: uh, and architecture explorer. And, uh, or something. Or something, yes. <laughs>
0: You're one of those people with uh, many, many titles.
1: Uh, yes, I do a range of things. Uh, usually walking around, taking pictures and uh, exploring London's history, architecture and kind of uh, tramping the streets, really, looking for new stuff and uh, stories to tell, really. So.
0: Yeah, well, we're in the same line. Yeah, that's
1: great. Brilliant. <laughs> Happy to be here.
0: We need to mention the well-known Mexican organisation uh, with which you are connected. It always reminds me of Speedy Gonzales. Riba. Riba.
1: Riba. Uh, Well, yeah, one time Public Programmes Manager at ROBA organising talks and events at the fabulous HQ building, Uh, ROBA being the Royal Institute of British Architects, and they have a fantastic gallery and talks and events programme down at Portland Place uh, in the centre of London. Yeah, I was part of that for many years. And uh, now freelance tour guide uh, and explorer, as I said, and doing research about all sorts of figures in London's architectural history.
0: And we're going to be focusing, I think, on one of those in particular. We're going
1: to be looking at John Nash today. Uh, John Nash is perhaps one of London's greatest architect planners, uh, perhaps up there with Christopher Wren, really, in terms of the impact that he had on the city. Um, He was the guy in the late 18th, early 19th century who was responsible for driving through the street we know today as Regent Street, uh, which, of course, is in the heart of the West End and basically the main thoroughfare through the centre of town. Um, He also uh, was responsible for many palaces, houses, and uh, where we are today, Regent's Park. Uh, He was the visionary designer creator behind what we see today which is a set of uh, quite fantastical terraces, villas streets and landscapes which um, I'm calling Scenes of Wonder uh, at the moment <laughs> just as a catchy walking title really, but essentially he was the guy who pulled it all together
0: So I should uh, before before we get underway with finding out about Nash, I should say that we've just emerged from Regent's Park Tube Station. Listener, I don't know if you've been there, but if you were Street side, you might fail to notice it's there altogether. There's a couple of roundels, but even Google Maps doesn't like to give too much away about its existence. Close enough to Great Portland Street to for you to think that it's just another entrance to that, and
1: very underused. Uh, Yeah, I understand strangely uh, one of the most underused tube stations uh, in central London so yeah an absolute delight at rush hour Uh, which must be good for your tours yes it's a good place to meet but uh, it's actually obscured by one of Nash's creations which is Park Crescent which is where we're standing at the moment we're just opposite on Euston Road one half of Park Crescent has been demolished it was a recreation a 1940s recreation but it kind of supports one of the themes in uh, Nash's life which is the idea of the importance of the facade and the setting um, many of Nash's contemporaries in the 18th century ridiculed him as being a collector of things rather than an actually uh, a serious architect, he didn't care about the detail he was a scene setter and really it's to London's benefit that he, he took that approach, he built very grandly in what you see around us at the moment which is stucco, this oil painted cream wash buildings covered in plaster which essentially mask uh, what are quite cheap brick buildings. Uh, and he did this all the way around the park and also all the way down Regent Street. So he was an architect, but also an architect with a very... Um a very get, strong sense uh, well, responsibility for budget. He was also a developer. He had an eye on money. He was a bit of an opportunist. He was a player. He, uh, you know, a real networker. I mean, today he would be all over Instagram and, and all of those things, basically hashtagging his career to pieces. Uh, but he was a really very keen networker and uh, was worked very closely with the Prince Regent, after which uh, the street is named and also the park. He became his great patron and uh, really it was because of that association with uh, the Prince Regent, George IV, uh, that all of this this happened. There was a few things, crucial things, that kicked off the development of the Regent's Park. Uh, It's kind of threefold. I mean, really, the the state, essentially, uh, wanted to get in on the act in the late 18th century on uh, making money from speculation, housing speculation. And so the state was, uh, as now, seeking ways in which to realise their assets. And one of those assets was this giant space north of the edge of Georgian London, uh, which was uh, called Marlebone Park. And that essentially is the Regent's Park that we're standing in. That was uh, about 300 acres worth of land, which had returned to the state. And so after a long lease, they were able to explore opportunities for developing it. The first plan was basically for, for housing like you'd see in Bloomsbury or elsewhere in Marlebone, which is lots of streets, lots of squares, uh, quite a dense arrangement. This was abandoned under fear that the state had seized the land for private profit rather than public enjoyment. Marlebone Park in the late 18th century was a place, it uh, was fields and farms and dairy farms and so uh, you know a lot of Londoners would head north and hang out in the fields so the idea that the state was seizing those fields to speculate and make money created a lot of political tension at the time and so the park itself came out of uh, quite a a, a set of strange circumstances, or happy accidents, rather, and compromises. So the landscaping idea was was put in after a lot of political pressure.
0: To give the well we're back to facades then aren't we to give the impression of it being a lovely public space
1: oh absolutely i mean it was primarily a commercial development with park worked in between that and that was really what john nash achieved very successfully about how to balance the needs of the state or the desire of the state to make some money to speculate to uh, have a commercial development but also give londoners this public space
0: now the the several things i can summon to mind about that period all all seem to suggest that that was a, a bit of a perfect storm then because on the one hand I think people were looking for investment opportunities around that sort of time lots of bubbles and so forth but another thing that was very fashionable was order and imposing order on landscape so in a way this is a a dream project
1: oh absolutely yeah and and there's you know the the terraces and villas are all about the idea of order and classical orders in particular, or Palladian orders, this uh, uh, classic uh, development of London terraces in five parts, which you see reworked time and time again around the park. Uh, you have your giant central feature, usually some sort of pediment. At either end, you have another smaller set of pediments, sort of flanking wings. And then in between, you have the terrace, usually with a runner of columns. In the Regent's Park, um, Nash plays with that incredibly. So you have ionic Doric, oriental Um, as I said earlier, he he was a collector of things, he didn't care for the uh, uh, what was appropriate he was a real commercial sort of architect
0: Does that mean he was
1: architecturally illiterate? No, no, he he, he knew what he was doing, Uh, he was just very canny and he played with that um, and very successfully so a lot of the terraces here are you know, slightly crude in detail, but the overall effect, as we'll see as we wander around, is, is pretty spectacular. The bright, cream stucco standing out against these uh, really beautiful, mature trees and landscaping.
0: Well, let's dodge then into the park, and it's pretty well fenced off on all sides it sounds pretty obvious from what you're saying that Nash was good at networking and um, getting in with the right people what were his roots
1: well when he started practice in about 1775 I mean he, start, he was a commercial architect working on a series of small villas for lots of private clients uh, uh, outside of London so he must um, have come
0: from a fairly well-to-do sort of background
1: uh, he was um a, yeah landed a uh, generally commercial family who are uh, merchant class, not particularly uh, high up in society, but middling, doing quite well. Um,
0: I, I guess I was wondering where he would have got the, the vantage point to have that sort of vision.
1: Well... Again, I think it was developed over his career. He worked with somebody called John Repton on his houses out in countryside, and John Repton was a landscape architect, and he did parks and working with a lot of people who wanted a country seat. Uh, Nash provided the villa, and uh, his colleague created the landscape around it. That was a very 18th century a desirable product. People wanted to, to live like that, uh, to mimic uh, the, the landed gentry elsewhere or the aristocracy. Um, and so... It's through that work that he was eventually he was working in the office of Woods and Forests, which is essentially the government's uh, development arm, uh, the State Land Management Company. Not sure exactly how he managed to get into that role, uh, but you can assume he was a a keen talker and this role presented itself. Quite interestingly, it wasn't his colleague John that got that role, Uh, it was him. So, uh, yeah, he's kind of worked his way through uh, a lot of clients at that time and eventually landing himself in a government role, advising lots of people on the development of London. Well, I suppose it's a. very good timing really for him because it was at that time where people were talking about the problems of London the West End had grown exponentially it absolutely you know exploded in terms of its density and people in streets and uh, there was a desire to uh, improve communication north and south and this is where the idea of Reading Street came from it, it wasn't necessarily John Nash's original idea he made it what it became he decided the final route but the origin of the idea was much earlier and he happened to be in the role as it came came to maturity so
0: let me get that clear in my mind that was he connecting up two areas that had are sort of naturally f- formed that were busy or was it a question of sort of pushing the boundaries further north?
1: Uh, well it was a bit of, bit of both. I mean the West End had developed uh, westwards basically and had reached Hyde Park and there was no major north-south street beyond Court Road which is the road going to Hampstead essentially. The main roads were all heading west and that was out into Oxfordshire or out into the, uh, the West Country. The main highways were in that direction and so the, the traffic chaos that uh, had...
0: Sorry, was Oxford Street called Oxford Street because it went to Oxford?
1: It wasn't actually. <laughs> Oxford Street is named after the Earl of Oxford, ah. who was the landowner immediately to north. Oxford Street used to be called Tyburn Road, after the river, uh, which which runs nearby. Um, but there wasn't a north-south route, and so uh, people wanted to reform the bits of the West End. There were landowners who didn't want to go cheek to jowl with Soho, because that... had fallen into uh, Bohemia which is a lot more interesting uh, but the aristocracy were no longer living in Soho the nature of those estates had changed and so there was a desire to uh, drive a street through and to connect up this piece of land this opportunity north and for the commercial success of this for this place to really work you needed access there needed to be a clear route and uh, that was you know, how you linked up the scheme it was really John Nash who started really taking control of that idea and linking up all the spaces in between one of the key visions that Nash sold particularly to George IV the Prince Regent was the idea of this processional way this royal route which would connect up the one-time palace down at um, the bottom of what is now Waterloo Place which was Colton House, so he had this idea that St James's Park and the Royal Palace down there would be connected to another royal structure up in the centre of Regent's Park. So at the heart of Nash's plan was this uh, building called a Gringueeta, which is essentially French for a uh, kind of fun palace. If you go to parks in, you know, Germans call it beer gardens, French call it gringuetta. and essentially it's a, a yeah a beer garden. He was proposing something slightly different, but it was a, a summer residence, the idea that the Prince Regent would, uh, in his carriage, head north along Regent Street, up into the park, and he would have a base amongst this beautiful new landscape with all these terraces of well-to-do housing. And it really was that idea. This was to be an exclusive suburb. And that's another interesting thing about that whole idea. The, the park, the landscaping was an accident, but in bringing these things together... We have the birth of, you know, the modern idea of the garden suburb, which we're still talking about. We, we talk about it in different terms today as the garden city, like Welland and others in the early 1900s. But this was the kind of the origin of that sort of idea that you could mix housing and development you could be close to the city but you could have this outlook which is rural pastoral and you know this idea of arcadia mixing landscapes of views scenes of wonder which is the name of the talk and uh, you know the lake the movement of people with this fantastic landscape of buildings framing you know backdrop to people's activities and the life of the spaces
0: how interesting so i wonder and maybe this goes further forward than we should really, but with the rise in fashion of romanticism and that sort of wild, non-urban taste, I wonder whether this started to look a bit uh, fusty after a few years.
1: Well, it took a very long time to build, Um, but I think... It was still very desirable as a place. It didn't, it didn't stay desirable for too long. I mean, it took a very long time to build, really. How long did it take? Uh, well, the whole scheme was, was over 20, 25 years. We started planting the trees in about 1813, and it wasn't until the early ni- 1830s that essentially, just before Nash had died, the, the, the government said, right, stop work. We can't keep on developing it. Uh, Nash spent the whole of the latter part of the 1820s desperately trying to reinvent, come up with new ideas for making this scheme more commercially viable. The terraces uh, closest to the city, which were towards the south and the southwest, worked very well. They were let really quickly. Um, but the ones further to the north, they really struggled to sell, to make viable. So this is just quite, it's quite a modern story really about commercial viability. Just uh,
0: given how we started the broadcast talking about the quietness, relatively speaking, of Regent's Park Tube and the difficulty of selling these places at the top of the park, I can't help noticing for the middle of the day in the middle of this city, we are on our own here in the park. There are very, very few people. I can see fewer than ten.
1: I've realised as well I've taken you on a route that... See very little architecture. Well, I was going to ask you I mean, we're (laughs) essentially in the middle of fields. I can't avoid
0: the innuendo, but where is your fun palace?
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Wherever I find it. Um, We'll head uh, east slightly here to the Broadwalk. So the, the fun palace was <laughs> the Gringueta was uh, halfway up the broadwalk, which is the broad avenue uh, in the centre of the park, which actually sits on the same axis as uh, Regent Street. So if you look at it on uh, on uh, satellite or, or maps, you can actually see that there's a kind of logic, this processional route, this idea again of the Prince Regent and this uh, ceremonial route. Um, would connect up the, the whole development all the way from Waterloo Place down at St James's Park through Piccadilly Circus, up round the curve of the quadrant, over Oxford Circus, uh, through Portland Place, over Park Crescent where we started, which is the kind of gateway to the park, and then straight through the centre. And it would have landed at this, this Royal Summer Retreat. As it is, the avenue... Carries on north, hits London Zoo, and kind of fizzles out. And this is the point where people usually ask, "How do I get to Primrose Hill?" <laughs> and uh,
0: <laughs> through the penguins.
1: Uh, exactly. <laughs> so you have to do an awkward left. So this processional route doesn't really end in anything uh, particularly glorious. Well, it's notable as well, isn't it, that he didn't retreat very far. Um, well, I mean, he
0: could have retreated to the Yorkshire Dales or something. No, like. but that's true. I mean, this was... Not I, even as far as London's Zoo. The,
1: the Prince Regent's big retreat was in Brighton uh, at the uh, Royal Pavilion, which John Nash also worked oh. on, which was happening at the same time. And this is, in, you know, this is where the kind of politics and the, the, the messy business of, of, of patronage and uh, you know, his, his closeness to the Prince. Um, he was essentially being given all the major works, and this created quite... A scandal, and if you look at periodicals from the time, John Nash is lambasted. Uh, there's this great cartoon of him standing on the spire, or spiked by the spire of All Souls Church, which he designed opposite the BBC on uh, Portland Place. And it, it's called National Taste, and it's meant to be a you know crude demonstrator that uh, this is a man who is out to make money and to uh, rob the public of uh, much needed funds. I mean, while Regent's Park was being built, the Royal Pavilion was being refurbished. George IV was also rebuilding uh, Buckingham Palace and so the idea that he needed another palace was ludicrous and it it created... It was quite a scandal. A lot of people were very angry about this idea that the Prince Regent could have, you know, more and more um, places for enjoyment.
0: It's particularly remarkable when you consider what had happened to the monarchy 100 years before.
1: Well, this is it. I mean, you know... One of the really interesting things about the park is this fear of the mob. Uh, this, you know, the French Revolution was only a few years before, 20 years before the idea had come up. So this idea of, you know, keeping public calm, you know, uh, avoiding scandal, um, was quite you know foremost in a lot of politicians' minds. And it was really the political pressure from other people that that you know. Change the plans and the nature of the park that we're walking around now, uh, and in particular the, the summer palace not happening. But of course, Prince Regent was quite pivotal as well because he, he championed it very publicly. He'd make grand addresses about London outdoing Paris, its great rival. So it was the idea that through the Prince Regent and John Nash and the creation of the street and the park and all the embellishments in between, that London would be reframed in glory finally to outdo bloody paris
0: <laughs> well that idea really lives on doesn't it i it, think it it, particularly in how the banks are treated in this country you know we need to have a strong thriving financial <laughs> sector that uh, unfortunately taxpayers have to bail out every so often at great cost but it'll be the envy of the world yeah,
1: absolutely it's our it's our glory that the banks are doing so well we should all be very proud of that fact but i'm, the, I'm delighted how about yeah, you no i wake up every day and thank <laughs> Thank you for that. That they're doing so well, but you know, the, as you say, the, the the rivalry between London and Paris is ongoing. But at that point, it was quite pronounced. I mean, in many ways, actually, London ended up taking the lead, an early lead on creating these streets through the city. You know, breaking through slums and narrow, twisting, uh, essentially, you know, some medieval, some. Uh, early 18th century lanes and muses. I mean, it was something, obviously, that Paris later in the 19th century made its own through Baron Haussmann and all of the streets you see there. But in the 1820s, it was London that was, was leading the way, really, in terms of creating modern streets. For a very modern sort of way of life, Regent Street was designed as a shopping street, a place to promenade, a place to be seen, and really that idea extended into the park. You know, lots of people would come up with their carriages, and there were uh, soft amusements around the edge. You had on the far right-hand side... Oh, I should say east, shouldn't I? You had the Colosseum and the panoramas, which essentially illuminated paintings and tapestries, and people would uh, essentially come in prom and hang out here in the early 18th century. Nash didn't originally want that to happen. He felt that the mixing of... Recreation and vulgar amusements would would drive the price down.
0: Now um, you you haven't really mentioned the vulgar amusements. Well, should I have been reading vulgar amusement in the uh, in between the
1: Colosseum? I don't know. If it was is particularly vulgar. vulgar. When you a say
0: Colosseum, I mean you don't mean people uh, fighting lions.
1: Uh, no, no. Um, literally, it's. Uh, I mean, it's the, the the building is still there. Perhaps we can go and have a quick look at it a bit later. But we're talking about a rotunda, a, a building with a big panoramic views in history, which were illuminated. So you had. For Why is example, that vulgar? it's a bit tacky Nash thought it was tacky I wouldn't mind one in my garden oh big painting of Vesuvius yeah why not yeah okay um well yeah why so, not? I see I our taste different <laughs> it's a bit of a Nash was a bit of a hypocrite because actually he was in the same business. His entire uh, output was about creating scenography, you know, creating settings and views and pictures. He was doing it in 4D. Uh, So, yeah, he was a bit of a hypocrite, kind of picking on the guys who create amusements in-house for the whole of Regent's Park is a thousand postcards. One of which is coming up now-ish, I think. No, I'm a bit early. Anyway. But... uh, the building we're coming up to on the right is Cumberland Terrace, and this really is oh, the... just,
0: I should locate that. That is... Uh... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
0: that is far to our right, through several tiers of trees. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, yeah. But basically, this is the grandest, most bombastic, fast- fantastical terrace of, of all of them. And, you know, they're pretty big. And this one, the centre of it, is lying on the axis of where the aforementioned Summer Palace would have been. So we're kind of near that spot now. And uh, eventually, when there's amazing mature trees break uh, you'll get this view uh, which essentially is a i think there's about 56 columns worth of facade there and this giant classical arrangement over eight bays which also sneakily includes a couple of semi-detached houses just behind a column of screens but at the heart of it is this giant pediment which at the top of is uh, a statue of britannia so it's this idea of the palace, which was so crucial to a lot of these terraces, that actually these are individual houses standing together but give the illusion of one giant country seat or giant fantastical palace.
0: Well, that is quite impressive, as you've described. Trees are just lining up. I noticed, by the way, that the trees are more or less on a grid system
1: as well. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the broad that we're walking down, these trees were all planted originally uh, in 1816. And so, yeah, this was all... This is the only, I suppose, geometric element of the scheme. Nash believed greatly in the idea of the picturesque, going back to the idea of romanticism that you mentioned. I mean, that's what the, the park and English landscaping was, was trying to do, conjure up this idea of a naturalistic place, you know, that it, you know, man hadn't touched this, it just, you just know, been found, this kind of idyll, this arcadia.
0: No, nope, I'm not getting that. These not, getting no, that. not only are the trees equidistant and lining the sides of the walkway here but as they go back in uh, five or six rows well they're, they're on a grid system there's no other way to put it they're all in straight lines how is that natural away okay. from the boardwalk
1: it, it, it's a lot more, oh, it's more natural over there, is yeah. it? Okay. sorry this is the only geometric element um but yeah this elsewhere the naturalistic apart from approach.
0: the non-naturalistic stuff it's extraordinarily <laughs> naturalistic yeah. Well,
1: yeah. <laughs> but at the same time you know john nash This is how prolific he was. He was also re-landscaping St James's Park, you know, as a demonstrator of the shift of style, of taste, and the idea of the fear of the mob, the fear of Europe, or the the difference of Europe. In the 1600s, uh, Charles II had had André Le Notre uh, come over to London and landscape St James's Park with this giant thousand foot long canal this this sharp you know ruler edged piece of water in a very european renaissance enlightened way john nash kind of tore that up in the early part of the 19th century and transformed that into a much more meandering piece of water again it's this idea that it was a natural landscape and that was an english way of doing things but of course the uh geometry the proportionality the uh the kind of classical on the edge was there to reference this kind of Arcadian landscape, sometimes ancient Greece, sometimes Rome, but in the case of Cumberland Terrace over there, this was a row of houses as national monument almost. That pediment that you see with Britannia is telling what was the start of a big imperial story for Britain in the 19th century. Uh, And so with the, I suppose, lack of money to create the public Monuments or the the public edifices and buildings, he snuck it onto a commercial development. So it's really, you know, doing two things. It's working very hard. It's telling a national story. It's setting the view on that edge uh, off very nicely. Um, But it's also providing housing for the upper middle classes. And uh, these ones were very successful. Do we know who all the statues are? Uh, We don't, but they're they're, they're mainly deities, uh, which kind of covers... (laughs) <laughs> covers everything really. <laughs> Nymphs, deities, Caryatids. I mean, some of them are allegorical. Britannia is there; she's there with her shield and trident. But elsewhere, they're, they're they're Venuses. They're you know this Greek mythology. These figures of of beauty and of progress, of peace and of tranquility abound in this space.
0: It's, it's very difficult to follow on from that line. I've just realised. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so overwhelmed.
1: I'll <laughs> well, just can't have a quick yeah. snooze. <laughs> good place for it, I think. Yeah.
0: Well, we're coming up for one of the world's most, ornate, if you rule out Victoria Park, one of the world's most ornate drinking fountains.
1: Yeah, this was... I'm going to forget the name of it, it's dedicated. This wasn't part of Nash's thing this came much later in the 1860s when the life of the park shifted quite considerably
0: yeah it has got that same victorian municipal thing
1: going on hasn't oh yeah it? It, it, it's a monument to somebody called parsi i think we can see the name we get closer to it. i think he helped the british out in india in a tricky spot as um, they often were yes
0: and so I, they- well, I just wanted to jump because that, that's uh it seems to me uh, Tell me if I'm wrong here. I could be completely wrong, but that seems like an inversion of the principles that we were talking about just a moment ago with Cumberland House, uh, which is that over there they've got a commercial thing, and strapped onto the front of it is something that looks a bit public. Here we've got something that is a public monument, but it's functional. It gives, it dishes out mm. water, and that seems to me kind of representative from what I can tell of the Victorian ethos that it's about serving the masses in some way a lot of the time getting the infrastructure in place.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely and I think that's that's a really crucial point really. I mean although the spaces around and in front of the villas the Regent's Park was was public, it wasn't public as we, we knew it uh, as we know it today. I mean really that idea of the public park was was a Victorian invention we had commons and so on but around the edge of regents park were a series of gatehouses and tiny little villas which essentially is where the security were and as you notice we come in there's some gates um they don't close anymore but at various times the roads and access into the park would have been heavily restricted i mean parks still closed today but you know they're essentially beagles keeping an eye on on who was coming into the area
0: so this was like what people have said about the garden bridge proposals in that there it gives the the semblance of being public space, but is in fact n- not so much.
1: Uh, yeah, it's quite similar. I mean, it was public by virtue of the the ground landlord being the state. But, uh, you know, this wasn't a place for riffraff in the 1820s or 30s. But later, as the nature of this area shifted, the, the nature of the people using the park... Shall we go this way?
0: Well, I don't know. Are they riffraff yeah. down there? <laughs> there? There will be by great, the time we're great.
1: down um, But <laughs> By the 1860s, the area's to the east of the park had become very industrial. The Euston Railway had arrived in the 1830s and Camden had really grown up as a very working suburb of a much larger piece of of London, of inner London. And so really the the facades create this... this quite firm barrier between two worlds which they still kind of do today and this idea that we started with the idea of the facade is so important you know you're controlling the space and i suppose the the mood the air you know architecture does that all the time setting is very important creating intrigue or creating ambiences and responding to uh that the the landscape is is something that he did
0: it's worth saying as part of that that it smells awfully nice here and that was one of the first things that struck me as we got close to the park was the, the fragrance of blossom and flower and i guess in the 1830s that couldn't have been more important
1: yeah i've never really thought about that to be well honest, we, we just
0: we <laughs> just had the uh with the, the arrival of the railways i guess some of those places around the back of king's cross which were
1: I see okay. less
0: desirable yes. they, they'd have gone yeah. But you'd have had the smoke coming in from the railways to take its, uh, to take the place of the stench of the uh, rubbish
1: heaps. Oh yeah, I mean much as then, then as now. I mean you know London's parks are its its lungs, and you know to get away from the smog, the industry, as you say, to have these spaces and to make them genuinely public was crucial, it was really important. It's something that, interestingly, in Paris, um, they, they borrowed the idea of the, the, the large parks and the, the open fields and spaces for all sorts of activity from London. I think it was Napoleon III who was here on Exile. He went back to Paris and gave, gave Parisians the Bois de Bologna, modelled on the parks that he saw in London, because Paris didn't have those spaces, so London is... You know, blessed with these incredible chunks of green, uh, which, yeah, in the Victorian city, must have felt even more uh, of a, you know, a refuge from life outside. But again, going back to this idea of facade, there is a very keen divide between the life of the park, the facades, and what you see at the reverse, which I suppose is, is the carrying on the, the theatrical illusion of, of scene-setting. This is backstage. This is where the, the dirty business of the development uh, was happening. As part of the development of the park, Nash also developed a series of marketplaces, places where trades and uh, uh, fruit and veg sellers, hay markets, all sorts, would actually facilitate the park. Uh, It was also a place where the materials to build Regent Street and all the houses came in. So we extended the Regent's Canal down on a spur, almost to Euston Road. So down behind these fantastic terraces lies this grubby, workaday bit of city, which was central to the success of, of getting this stuff off the ground. I mean, at that time, canals were the way to bring materials into the city, and Nash understood that. He was a very, you know... In terms of programming development, he did that fantastically. You know, He knew what he needed to make that work, to get the materials, you know, a logistics sort of guy as well. So this is why he's so fascinating, really, that he was covering all bases...
0: Well, we've passed between... Actually, what we're passing between is two sets of children's play apparatus, and I suppose that carries through the idea that you are talking about there with the grandness being up the front end and the... Well, I don't think children are dirty business, but they're not quite as glamorous, and uh, they've been confined to this rear part of the park.
1: Well, I think Nash would have put them in... Hogers or something a little bit more appropriate to the, the classical illusion. I'm not, I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> it would have designed Little that wings and of bows and arrows. Would been, that would have been a tower of the winds, not this pirate adventure. <laughs> <I> and <mean>, again, <laughs> the, the sort of thing going on in the park, Nash had to relax really, because as I said earlier, it wasn't the biggest commercial success and so the commissioners who were in charge of the, the budget essentially would have to accept that there'd be greater diversity of uses in order for it to make it pay. Riff Raff riffraff. <laughs> you have the zoo arriving in the 1840s a bit later, actually after uh, Nash's death.
0: Well, what would Nash have made of that?
1: Um, well, originally it was set up as a scientific institution, so I think he would have been alright with that. But as a, as a place of amusement, later, yeah, he may have had some trouble. Giraffes in togas. Exactly. Well, it's interesting there's one of the architects he was working with, a guy called Decimus Burton, which is one of those great early 19th century names, meaning ten, my tenth child. Which is great. It's decimals, uh, anyway. Um, he he actually designed uh, the first buildings in there. So this guy went from designing, um, working with Nash on these classical, you know, terraces to building giraffe houses and uh, aviaries, which is quite, yeah, quite interesting. I mean, essentially they're warehouses, but they're, some of them are still there, which is great. And um, we're coming up to. A church, the name of which escapes me momentarily. But oh, but um, the
0: clash of architectural styles is and impressive this is
1: why. This is what makes the story of Regent's Park so much more interesting. I, it?
0: I should describe very quickly, we've got one of those big cream-washed terraces that we've been talking about. It must be uh, in width, I would guess, round about uh, 15 miles. <laughs> and next to it, there's a small church, all higgledy-piggledy, dark stone, Tudor chimneys, and a thin spire poking up.
1: Uh, Yes, so this was something that was constructed in the 1820s as a church and um, I think, oh, I'm going to get it wrong, but uh, it was a college. But essentially, it's... Nash hated this. He he was really affronted by the idea that this architectural harmony was going to be destroyed Uh, by incorporating what is, as you say, a a gothic, rough brick building with spires and gables and visible chimneys. And, you know, it it didn't fit his vision.
0: God getting in the way again. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But, uh, you know, you compare it to the thing on the left with its Greek deities standing on top of the, the pediments. This is a controlled vision this is a, an aesthetic battle here, but Nash had to accept that he wasn 't going to always get his own way on it again this is you know the interesting thing about it it's it's a lot of it 's a compromise there's kind of happy accidents um history well tends to tell us you know the the glorious continuity of things but what 's a lot more interesting is the kind of skullduggery, the uh, nepotism the uh uh you know all of the arguments and fights and compromises that people had to make to, to have these outcomes, and London's built fabric is is a symptom of all those sort of things, which is kind of you know even more fascinating.
0: What's your view of Nash by the time he gets towards the end of his life? What sort of person do you think he was? Um, I
1: think <laughs> I think he was just pretty frustrated, um, but he needn't have been. I mean, well, really, after all of this no, achievement, I'm, yeah. Um, I mean, he, I think he. Because of the scandal, I mean, his patron, George the Fourth, yeah, was basically told to calm down and his budgets were cut and so Nash lost his patron and lost his sponsor, lost his client uh, for so much work. So I think he was frustrated. I mean, the, the, the fact that he kept on producing these plans and revisions for how he was going to squeeze more delight into this park or more commercial development, um, it, I think demonstrates that he, he desperately... Cared and wanted to keep keep going. It was the commissioners that just said, "That's it, you know, no more. It's finished. Just let it be." Essentially, but uh, yeah, Nash wanted to keep going. But uh, you know, when he died in 1835, yeah, you know, this had, this was maturing. This was taking off. So it was you know a great success. I'm not sure commercially uh, it was the most viable thing. It's a strange thing that you know it started life as. A way for the state to make money, but then the state snooked itself by creating a public space from which it couldn't make money. <laughs> I was going to find it very difficult to make yeah, money.
0: There's definitely a flaw in that plan. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's a delightful flaw from which we all benefit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. we we're, we're, we're doing it now, but. There was a plan originally for about 28 villas to be distributed through the park, which, you know, never happened. There was only about eight built, and they were very difficult uh, to get off the ground, and uh, some of them were demolished. But, yeah, again, Nash was trying very hard to add things, to reimagine it. At the very heart of the park, uh, where we walked through earlier, there was this plan for a giant double circus of buildings, which would be, you know, a park crescent in double even bigger. And, you know, he was still working on that in the late 1820s, when it had already been demonstrated that a lot of the traditional terraces were quite difficult to let. Hart Crescent itself, which was one of the first schemes that started in 1816, was abandoned because they couldn't get the financial backing. I mean, it's quite an, an ominous start to such a grand project. I feel
0: like there's two different things you're saying there. One of them being that they couldn't let them once they were completed, and one that they couldn't get backing. And both of those seem extraordinary.
1: Well, when it started, this was, you know, this was a completely new venture. It was uh, something that was going to be set in amongst countryside and or the illusion of countryside parkland um, and actually this was at the extreme north of built up london and so the, the fashionable developments down at mayfair it this was where the prime property was the estates the grosvenor estate down in mayfair towards hyde park you know the ta- uh, london was expanding in that direction and so this was the peripheral so that in that sense it was risky it was the edge of town it was a new venture and it took i suppose quite a bit of effort to Convince people to invest and to uh, you know make this place their home, and for builders to take the risk. Nash himself took the risk on quite a lot of projects. He was a f- he financed them. He was a developer and an architect, and so you know that says a lot about his conviction, his determination to make this project work. He threw his own money at stuff, and became a, a developer and you know he created his own project through his own money. So that's I think that's very interesting. But there was boom years for the park. As I said earlier, the, the terraces that we passed uh, towards the south Uh, They were let very quickly, but towards the end of the development, I suppose, fashion had changed. The drift of London was shifting, Belgravia was taking off, Uh, and so a lot of the most fashionable developments had headed south by the 1830s. And so over the course of the 19th century, the nature of this area changed very dramatically. As I said earlier, we have... London Zoo arriving, you have all these different amusements, you have the railway either side of, of the park and uh, you know, by the turn of the 20th century a lot of these terraces were semi-derelict um, there's, there's great shots in in Reba's archives actually that show the terraces just before the Second World War and they're, they're, they're rotting, you know, the, the oil paint facades, the plaster is hanging off bricks and they've been subdivided so there's been a curious kind of shift in how people view these. I mean, the late Victorians called Nash's building sham architecture. They, they didn't value them at all. And so they didn't think anything of tearing them down, which uh, down at Cambridge Gate, which is on the, the east side, uh, which is what they did. They rebuilt a terrace in this grand French style uh, this french empire style big mansard roofs in bath stone because you know plaster was was considered sham and actually that's kind of true but you know but but why not it had the general effect and again that comes back down to the back to the idea of nash as a, a scene maker and uh, you know not caring too much for the detail was the overall setting and so yeah i kind of It's a really interesting story for that. And I think, actually, the fact that these terraces are so desirable today and that people are spending vast amounts of money restoring them, you know, there's a constant smell of oil paint in Regent's Park because people have to keep an eye on this stuff. It doesn't last very long. Uh, It's only skin deep. It's brick behind. There's all sorts of cavity walls. There's bits that can, you know, damp can get behind all these different materials. And they're constantly layering on paint, oil paint, on top of these details which they there's a kind of cycle to these buildings they layer it up layer it up layer it up the detail disappears and then they have to start again
0: we've come to the end of our time Unbelievably, that's whistled by. We might have to go to the zoo. In fact, I know what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to jump on eBay immediately and uh, try and bag myself an enormous painting of Vesuvius for my garden. (laughs) Fantastic. It's, uh, yeah, panorama. If people wish to accompany you around a tour of the park or, indeed, uh, somewhere else in London, how can they go about Uh, that? Well,
1: they could go to uh, my website, which is novemberspawned.co.uk. What? (laughs) (laughs) November... Gonna change it at some point. Um, at the moment, that, that's the the website. It's a Morrissey song, but anyway, it's a long story. But uh, at the moment, that's where I kind of post my walks and tours. So the, the the first one coming up with Reba is on the 11th of June, which I think you can book for now. Uh, well, I hope so. So yeah, architecture dot com is probably uh, an easier place to find me. But uh, if you check um, NovemberSpawn uk, there's yeah. other oh, stuff. Or oh,
0: William, doing. it was really nothing dot com.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> swayed <laughs> etc but yeah
0: <laughs> Mike Althorpe thanks very much
1: thank you
0: and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to Mike Althorpe thanks too to Lizzie Cooper and Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by songs from The Howling Sea and then Quentin Wolf. <laughs>